Hello, Heron. Hello, Tom. Well, we're recording at a slightly unusual time today. Yeah, it's going to be very strange, I think. Yes. Are you still drinking wine? Uh, yes. In fact, I just just filled a glass. I figured I'd try it in the afternoon and see how it goes. It it provides, for folks listening, it provides an important periodicity through the recording because I stop and restart my recorder every time Heron goes to get a wine glass. So I try to time it typically between 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, so I can edit the recording <laughs> in reasonable parcels, basically. Ah, how clever of you. A little insight for folks who are interested. <laughs> so I have a wide variety of topics here. Many of them listener-submitted, many self-generated, but I wanted to start by asking if you had any topics. <laughs> this is sort of standard, isn't it? And then it my is. standard answer is no, but actually this time I... I do have a couple of things. Very good. And, and as, as just some observations, really. Um, I'm really sorry we missed the Friday because that was the eve of the real new year. Uh, yes. And uh, so I was looking forward to uh, summing up my, or not talking about it, but, you know, just wi- winding up the year with the conversations. So. Certainly. Uh, what else? Um, and, you know, Every time a page comes out of my printer, I'm still blown away by technology. I haven't gotten uh, jaded. I mean, I am certain to some extent, I guess, but but still, I, I'm just stunned by what computers can do. Mm. You know, I remember my very first computer, which was uh, the original Mac 128, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and how blown away I was by that. <laughs> and when I look at that now, I just think, my God, what, what a useless piece of crap that was. <laughs> you know? yeah. But but at the time, it was miraculous. You know, it freed me from a, a typewriter, which, which, which was astounding, you know. Were you ever a big typo? Not really, but I mean, I did have a typewriter, and and I was trying to put ideas down, and you know, and produce things. So uh, I, I had a lot of experience with retyping pages because I made a typo three quarters of the way through it. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know, it was crazy. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. God, what a what a miracle. Anyway, uh, so I, I, I'm like I say, and and the printing technology now. I mean, to print my art. I mean, the art that the the stuff that comes off my hundred and it's a pretty good printer it's 150 bucks or so mm. to print eight and a half by 11 but the stuff that comes off that ep, ep, well i've tried lots of printers mm-hmm. lots of uh papers and everything and the uh, epson printers ink and paper together is just an absolutely unbeatable combination i've seen nothing like it and every time one of my prints comes off that printer God, it just stuns me that, that that the technology can do that. You know, I'm I'm still blown away by it. Yes. Oh man. Yeah, I have a slight bias towards Epson printers, but let's move back a little bit to typewriters. Yeah. Because I have very fond memories of typewriters. I had, oh. I've had a couple through my through my early childhood. I learned to type at a relatively young age. Dictionary next to me, and when I was probably about six, I wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper which didn't identify that I was of any age, and it was actually printed, not noting that I was a young person or anything like that. It was just printed. Yeah, just a letter. I can't for the life of me remember the topic, (laughs) but it was printed. Typewriters and the ability to type relatively quickly was eliminated the barrier for entry with computers. Ah, yeah. Because with that skill kind of taken care of, 
when I was, I don't know, maybe, what, this first grade, second grade, I had access to computers, but I was allowed 30 minutes a week. That was like, the view was that this was like television, that children would become, you know, hopelessly addicted, develop square eyes, all the usual kind of Luddite banter that just seemed to be yeah. relatively standard. So we were allowed half an hour a week in pairs. And initially I, you know, I gave the, the person I was with an opportunity to type, but pretty soon within the class, it was noted that I could type far faster than anyone else. Yeah. So and I you... also found that I could create games. If I could create a game in Logo, Logo being a programming language, yeah. in half an hour, then I could leave the computer with my partner. I would write the game and then my partner would play the game. And this went on for um, a few months. And then I wrote a word search game where you put in i think 16 words or more actually and then it created a 50 by 50 grid of letters and the classmates had to pick out what the words were yeah, yeah. from that so yeah as a, at a young age i was very interested particularly once the game aspect had been identified that i had a limited amount of time and i needed to do as much as possible within that limited amount of time i you know my young brain basically took to work. And really, I don't remember much else associated with my early education. I just remember <laughs> that anticipation of getting in front of a computer and be having to type really quickly in order to get the game yeah. to work first time. Yeah, yeah. I'm only now, really in the last, really the last year or two, beginning to be able to kind of type without having to really look at the keyboard all mm. the time. It was never a problem for me because I wasn't a typist in the sense that I was copying some text or something. I was just <laughs> typing out of my head, so there was no reason not to look at the at the keyboard. Uh, but but nevertheless, it's really only in the last couple of years that I I feel like I'm beginning to be able to type sort of okay. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's always been an obstacle. I've always seen the keyboard back, even back to the 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 typewriter days is just this sort of obstacle between me and getting the ideas out there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was a particularly bleak period when we first moved over and lived in Las Vegas. We came back to the US and I still had some friends here, but it took a few months <clears throat> for the kind of contracting work to start up again. And through that period of time, I went into an outfit called Manpower, which is just basically, a, I guess, a temping agency. And I was actually quite disappointed that consistently, i.e. for what typists have to do, I could only manage 105 words a minute. At oh, that wow. Time. Wow. I was very disappointed. I thought typically, and for certain, for certain things, I can get much faster, but to do it without error based on dictation yeah. and these kind of things is actually quite difficult. Yeah, I used to work at a place where we had a couple of typists that, yeah. that were just phenomenal. You know, <laughs> and they were doing like, you know, 180 words yeah. without error, yeah. you know, just just it was amazing to watch them do it, you know. It was just stunning. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'd be there uh, plodding along, you know, looking at <laughs> it was awful, you know. You know, and, and the other thing that's on my mind is the sheer complexity of software and hardware systems that I'm afraid that it's that it's going to reach a point where the it's like Apple iOS seven and uh, ten point nine, uh, you know there are just so many little annoying things about it that mm. that just hasn't been there before. I, I can't really even name them all, but they're just and what I'm I, I'm suspecting that 
These systems are getting so complex, so many different people and different groups working on parts of it that they fix something in one place, it creates a problem somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And there's really nobody who actually understands what's going on anymore. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's what I do in my day job, basically. Yeah. Not specifically for the fruit factory. I think the problem currently is that operating systems have become a thing which they were never originally intended to be. I mean, if you go back to the original Mac, there was a very clean delineation between the operating system, things that you edited movie, well, not the original Mac, but things that you edited drawings with, these kind of packages. There were ebbs and flows, which meant that software and operating system had very definite, you know, limits. I'm talking about application software specifically. Now, the operating system has to do so much. I mean, if you look at iOS in particular, the operating system has to play movies and audio and do a wide variety of like web-based interactions that needs oh, to be yeah, able to like databases. Oh yeah, so many things to yeah. yeah it's all just, the stuff that was traditionally in application yeah. software is now in the operating system. Yeah, and, and it's also in the applications too. <laughs> so, well, I mean, no, the you interface got those. has changed. The interface yeah. has changed, yeah. basically. The applications in general have become less and less about implementing, you know, an MPEG encoder or decoder. Okay. Okay. They're just using the system. Exactly. To... And so yeah. you are you are exactly right. In fact, it's really curious. Apple typically recruits from university. They bring in people young. They get them to work as hard as possible for as long as possible. And then eventually they have to move on. While I was developing No Blake, I would frequently encounter, you know, fresh from college engineers who had no understanding of the historical legacy. And when you talk about the original Mac, you're talking about things like, um, you know, Mac Paint, for Mac example. Mac Paint and Mac Write. Yes. <laughs> that was so the, the technology beginning. <laughs> in Mac Paint, particularly associated with binary manipulation, moves very easily into the color drawing packages, moves very easily into some of the stuff that I've done with No Blake. But if you come straight from college, you've never, you've never studied Bresnum, you know, line algorithms. You've never studied any of the kind of binary manipulation. So what you get now is, is people who are very skilled at particular languages. And then as you find at Apple and other places, you have engineers who are, you know, in their forties and fifties who basically understand at least some of the stack, if not deeper down the stack. And their roles are quite distinct. You also have, you learn um, a series of analytical tools as you kind of progress professionally in software engineering, which means that you can find issues potentially considerably faster than folks who are first picking up software yeah. engineering. Sure. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not necessarily as fatalistic because I do work with folks at the Fruit Factory on a on a pretty regular basis. But I do appreciate that the kind of issues that are being found, you've got to appreciate the difference between iOS 6 and iOS 7 was pretty profound. Oh, yeah. It's not just a pretty new interface. No. No. The the (laughs) issues, which actually came on macOS 10.9 as well, they started looking at battery usage. They started looking at the way that they were doing processing. They started looking at various underlying optimization, which has currently caught me up with Noble Ape on the Apple platform. So there were various things that they did to try to make it easier for... It's hard really to describe this phenomena, but back prior to iOS... There was a core group of Mac developers in the world, and there was no other real interest for the Mac operating system. iOS introduced a vast number of developers, many of whom who had done websites previously, who didn't, who weren't traditional software engineering types, that wanted to create apps. And that, yeah. in and of itself, is a wonderful thing. But what it produced was a 
very different kind of perspective on how you actually interact with this kind of technology. And Apple, you know, has been leading the charge with some of this as well. I'm not as familiar with, you know, the the Android side, although I have a a couple of friends who are, who are deeply and intimately connected with that through Google. But, you know, this is just happening currently. The interesting phenomena, which I'll put out to you and you probably understand quite fundamentally, is that this is part of a kind of wave, wave breaking phenomena. The technology that is being developed currently, some of it was developed about 10 years ago, but it was at that time really a simplification. So if you look around Mac OS ten four, they started making the Mac operating system a lot more like iOS, and they basically removed a whole lot of stuff through that process. So, you know, you have these interesting kind of ebbs and flows. And as I've noted in our last recording, even talking with people who are in senior positions within the industry, they still view this currently as being possibly a decade-long phenomena. And everyone who is part of this thing, or at least I hope everyone who is at least consciously part of this thing, appreciates that the next thing that comes along may or may not have the body of work and the body of engineers that exist currently. And the historical legacy has always been through this kind of churn process anyway. So, you know, there are people that made reasonable money in the speculative technology dot-com boom that just basically got out of the industry after that, either because they decided to cash out or because they lost everything. (laughs) One way or another. You have these kind of interesting ebbs and flows. But, you know, I mean, I, you know, I spend a portion of my time working with the folks in the fruit factory, and I have a lot of respect for um, the engineering folk at Apple. I think they're... Oh, they're... they're, You know, well, I'm just looking at things like iTunes. I mean, that started out as a really nice music player. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is just hopelessly stupid now. I mean, it does everything under the goddamn sun. Yeah. You know, and it's just... Crazy. <laughs> yes. The interesting thing about iTunes is that it it had to do so much. It was such, and you know, they've tried to do things like breakout. Well, the fact that and, it works at all, yes, I mean, is just stunning to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's yeah. I mean, I, it looks to me like there's like five different applications in there that yeah. I really wish were separated, at least. And this, this, I mean, the thing that makes iTunes still iTunes is the ability to buy music through it. I mean, without yeah, it was that. a great media uh, manager, yeah. you know, and and they should just leave it as a good media manager, <laughs> you know, and then and then have some sync software that that's a separate issue, you know. Yes. Well, who knows? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a guy to criticize on that level. All I know is uh, it just worries me sometimes. I think that every and I don't mean just computers. I mean everything is getting so complex and interpenetrated and interconnected. That the complexity of the whole system, the internet, I mean, everything, you know, uh, strikes me as it, that it, it could be vulnerable to uh, a certain, what's the word I'm looking at? Some trigger phenomena, you know, some level of complexity at which the whole thing just breaks down. Mm. And, uh, and you'd know more about whether that's a possibility or not. But I just, I just realized, you know, what I've been going through the last few days with my computer. Oh, and by the way, another great thing about Apple, I'll, I put it on my Facebook page too, but, uh, I did a diagnostic test on it and it turned out that my hard drive, uh, motor is failing. Mm. And that, that probably is responsible for all the weird behavior my computer has been giving me for a few days. And, um, when I talked to Apple about it, they're sending a guy out to my house Monday to replace the hard drive. Hmm. 
I, I was stunned. I mean, I was thinking, oh, shit, I, you know, this is a big 27 inch iMac. I'm going to have to hang, you know, haul this thing into the Apple store and leave it for a, a week or something, you know. And no, they're going to send a guy out to replace the hard drive for me here. I, I don't, does anybody do that? Well, well I mean, it's great. Yeah, I mean, apparently, I mean, if you're a, a company and you've got a contract, you know, they do all sorts of shit. But for just normal old end users, uh, I couldn't believe it. Did you buy Apple Care or anything? Yeah, yeah, well, I've got, yeah, I've got Apple Care. Well, that's probably it. Oh, they, yeah, but still, I mean, even with Apple Care, I'm, I'm still stunned they do that. You know, I mean, I, I expected, you know, f- I buy the Apple Care mostly for warranty stuff, you know, but I don't, ex- I've never expected them to come out and repair it. I figured you bring it in and they fix it for free. <laughs> you know, it's a pain in the butt, but. You know, and, and the support, the phone support, that's, that's really where it's worthwhile. Th- their phone support is awesome. You get to like level two or level three techs. These guys actually know what the fuck they're talking about and they'll spend hours on the phone with you. You know, I mean, they're, they're stunning. So, uh, the, yeah, the, the, as far as I'm concerned, the Apple Care is, I mean, cause I've, I very seldom have hardware go bad. I've never had a hard disk in a, in a Mac go bad before. Mm. But, uh, but the ability to just get them on the phone anytime and ask any question you want, that's really nice. <laughs> yes. Yes, I've never gotten Apple Care. But it's, as you say, it's because of the general build quality of Macs. The Macs we have at work, however, I'm not sure because we move around with them or what have you, and we certainly abuse them in terms of, you know, running them at all times of the day and night. What are they, uh, MacBooks or what? Yeah, they're MacBook yeah. Pros. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Current ones, I mean, mostly new models. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. But yeah, it's interesting actually. The phenomena that most PC users experience associated with hardware failure seems to be minimized through use of Apple products. The only thing I've ever had, I had a video card go bad in, mm-hmm. in a MacBook Pro once, and I think yes, I've I've had Mac since 1984, and that's the, that and this hard drive are the only hardware failures I've ever had. Yes. Yeah, I got no complaints there. But I say the Apple, I mean, the Apple cares for that, which is nice. But, but, uh, for me, it's the phone support. That's, that's just been invaluable, you know. Mm. I'm in a heavy year in review mode currently. Oh, good. And in part because of, I don't know, a sense that this year has been productive in some ways, but there have certainly been things that I wanted to work through that I haven't yet worked through. But also because I think, it's a good use of time to start, you know, thinking critically and anticipating what you would like to be doing in 2014. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I do that every year. I mean, I, I live year to year, and this is the time, well, uh, leading up to two days ago. Yeah, I've been reviewing how this past year has gone and uh, and how this next year, how I'd like it to go. <laughs> So, for folks listening in, I mentioned this in a prior recording, but I'll mention it again. The way I memorialize Herod and my interaction on LinkedIn is through the Center for Applied Epistemology. I changed it to of uh, Applied Epistemology to for Applied Epistemology. Yeah, that's what, it, well, that's, that's what, what I've always called it. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to maintain the Center for Applied Epistemology on my LinkedIn 
profile, I probably should actually do something. Well, you probably ought to have, yeah, a center for applied epistemology. Exactly. Like a site, at least, that people can go to and say, ah, that's the center for For applied epistemology. epistemology. Yeah, right. Yeah, there it is. So I must have had about two. And yeah, I want to be sure to have a place, a PayPal thing on there so people can give us money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking, actually, we should put up books and resources that people can purchase. Well, Uh, that's why I asked you about a mission statement. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, if we're going to have a center for applied epistemology, there needs to be what the hell are we doing? (laughs) Well, that's an interesting I mean, my perspective with regards to applied epistemology is that I represent the kind of computer analytical or simulation analytical One aspect applied of, epistemology. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's my primary interest. Yeah. Um, but through the center as well, I think it's important to educate others associated with applied epistemology. And I guess that is my, you know, my yeah. responsibility, uh, in creating this website for the center. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see, um, what happens. Uh, <laughs> I was a little surprised when I saw that. Just because, you know, I've been using that name for a long time, have never done anything with it, but I liked the name a lot. Yes. <laughs> you know? Well, you've, you've been, I mean, you, you will be acknowledged as the founder and 30 year contributor to the center through the well, site. Well, I can say, well, yeah, I assume I'll have something to do with it. Yes. <laughs> You know? Yes, but but like I say, uh, it immediately came to my my mind. Okay, now if Tom is going to go ahead and actually do this, then what the fuck are we doing? W- what is the Center for Applied Epistemology? So there's already applied-epistemology.com. Really, and they have a series of readings on that website that I think they're acknowledging is important for ah, epistemological okay. reasons. That's I didn't good spend idea. too much time. We'll, we'll have to send a link. I'll put a link yes. to them. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe do some. The, the problem with the web page is it looks, it's a very, you know, web point one kind of yeah. interface. It's not really the kind of thing that I'd like to affiliate the center with, yeah. you know, when the website launches. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, there's potential for collaboration and certainly there's a, an acknowledgement in the ether. Well, I just mean, I was just talking about like other links, yes. you know, the other people who are doing this, and, yes. you know, without endorsing them necessarily. <laughs> well, you know. other links is, yeah. is an endorsement in these. Yeah, things, in so. a sense. Yeah. Yes. In, in part, I've been thinking very critically associated with my work with the International Society for Artificial Life or of Artificial Life. I'm never sure because they, you know, they floated a series of ideas that just don't seem to be addressing my, you know, primary concerns as an artificial life developer. But more importantly, I'm also thinking about, so I have a, I have a forum site called uh, freshsim.org which doesn't really get much traffic. It was originally set up to scratch a series of biota riches, but the folks that keep on coming back or come back with a relative frequency have started to drop off that site as well. I maintain five websites. I've always maintained five websites. And what has happened is, as a new website has come forward, I've removed another website or archived another website, but I maintain a kind of personal limit of five websites as a means of just... I don't know, representing my online footprint and associated with sites that I'm actually hosting. Yeah. And I think if I'm going to bring forward the Center for Applied Epistemology, probably one of these other sites is going to have to go. And <clears throat> on freshsim.org, what I'm going to do is record a podcast put out to the biota community 
you know, the way to maintain this site is by actively participating on the site, but also using it as a as a resource that people can suggest topics or even, you know, record podcasts for the bio feed, for example, through it. Yeah. But if the community isn't there, if the community's either moved on to do other things or as as seems to be the case, there seems to be a next generation of the community just percolating up, they're going to sites such as Reddit and YouTube and these kind of things to do their community creation. There's no point in maintaining a historical legacy site that no. no one uses, basically. No, no. Unless you're going to take the effort and to make it something. Well, you know, the effort is interesting in these circumstances. Of- I mean, my view is that actually to make the effort as an individual can be, you know, very interesting in a kind of baroque sense and creating something that's, you know, elaborate and detailed and all this kind of well, stuff. Well, whatever but, you want, you but, know, to but be. Uh, having, having said that, it, you get, I've certainly found through doing model rail radio and to a lesser extent what we've done through Stone Ape that the best way to do these kind of projects is actually to have an interested user base, for want of a better term, listener base in these cases, that are actively contributing and creating something that kind of motivates energy. I mean, I work on Noble Lake relatively independently. I've had a fellow contact me recently. Obviously, Bob Mottram and a wide variety of other developers have had a legacy history with Noble Lake. But that is something that I continue to maintain without this kind of productive feedback in most part. Yeah, yeah. But that's to do... With- well, that's a very specific kind of deal, though. You, you yeah. know, you've it's your vision. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Although the, it's nice to have a community, too, you know. So a website that I floated uh, about three or four years ago now was called I Am Darwin. And it was a website where people submitted YouTube clips where they talked about how what the, the work that they was, were doing related to Darwin's legacy, but also how Darwin was important to them. Mm. And this was based on the I Am a PC set of Microsoft commercials <laughs> that they put out to illustrate that people yeah. still use PCs yeah. with, you know, some interesting work behind it. <laughs> and I am Darwin put me in contact with about 30 different scientists. And, let, let me ask yeah. you, why, why wouldn't you just do that like as a YouTube channel because, or something? Well, the problem, I, I, the problem is other people I mean, have... I mean, you say you were specifically soliciting videos, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Through YouTube. Yeah. People would use their own YouTube channels to record YouTube clips and then submit it to me that I would put on the site. How did you advertise it? I mean, you had to get your idea out there to people I so they put know it was through there. various mailing lists and, um, you know, some of Dawkins people helped out with it. Okay. So you had a, you had a way to do that though. Yeah. So you had a way to get people to understand that it was there if yeah. they wanted it. Okay. Certainly. And through this, uh, as he was at the time, a documentary student or I guess that's what you call them, contacted me. He's since become a documentary maker. He's, you know, he's in his, I guess, mid-twenties now. But I was thinking, actually, one of the projects that we kind of kicked around through the year was what was dubbed at the time Heron in Squish, but it was an idea that, you know, short films or what have you to get out these seed ideas from your part in particular. I was thinking through the week because I watched a documentary called Blackfish, which is associated with kind of SeaWorld and the legacy of um, orcas, you know, occasionally attacking people sometimes killing them quite brutally in these confined environments. Anyway, he posted on, as soon as I commented on that, he posted associated with the legacy of CNN distributing this documentary. And I realized I do actually have folks I know out there who are 
you know, documentary filmmakers that have the yeah. skill set that are formally trained. Yeah. And what I need to do is engage these people individually and say, <laughs> is this something that interests yeah, you? Yeah, let's get them on board. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking musicians, too. Yeah. You know, all, all the artists, all yeah. the various things. Uh, if if musicians started writing songs that addressed some of these oh. issues, wouldn't that be interesting? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I spent about five years, and true, this is probably Australian... Australian, particularly, you know, out-of-work musician Australian. But I spent a long <laughs> period of time, well, five-odd years. Actually, it's probably less than that, what, 19, four years, courting musicians in Australia to try to get them to collaborate on no late-related stuff. And the, yeah. it was very easy to get them on CDs. They loved being put on CDs. There was no problem with that. But any kind of future collaboration in particular, when I wanted, you know, things associated with my work put on their CDs, then it was a very different and yeah. more interesting yeah. question. Yeah. So I just want them to write songs about the stuff that you, you and I talk about yes. a lot. You know, yes. I mean, as a, elliptically as they want, I don't really care, you know, yeah. but, but, uh, yeah, to God, imagine if the Beatles had been singing about epistemology. Yes. <laughs> You know, mm. I mean that. Imagine if most of the people, or half the people in the world, say we, actually knew that I'm, word. I'm sure. We, I'm sure we can do it. What would it be? What is it? Let it be. Let it be. It'd be the verb to be. The verb to be. The verb to be. The verb to be. I'm sure we can do it. I'm sure we can do every. We can do the five stupidities in Beatles songs by the end of this recording. Era. Uh, no, good luck. Oh, let me think. Let me think. <laughs> yeah, you say it's reification. It's oh, no, well, that, that's everywhere. That's easy. I mean, that's not a problem. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of all the beat, all the five. Anyway, we'll work through them. We'll work through them. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, well, we'll do this for next. Why don't we leave this one uh, to our listeners yeah. and have them uh, give us. Uh, <laughs> A list of Beatles songs that address the five stupidities. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell else is a, is a community for? Exactly. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think the challenge is open for this recording, but I'll, I'll leave it out there for the <laughs> listeners. So I've talked briefly previously about creating a YouTube channel specifically for short clips associated with some of the ideas that we put out. And I thought yeah. one of the ways we could do it is by putting out segments of the podcast to these clips. But I think probably I need to front this thing and do it actually quite there. I've gone through this thought pattern through the past week or so associated with whether I create a funnel or whether I create independent entities that kind of yeah. interact more in a, a web-like fashion. Yeah. And yeah. my view is really the independent entities are probably a superior method. Yeah, I think, you know, I just, well, like what Mott's doing is taking, you know, three-minute or mm. five-minute clips out of a podcast that address a specific issue clearly, mm. you know, and putting them up. Uh, I think is a really neat idea. I like that. Mm. Uh, in fact, I just listened to uh, actually my very second podcast that I have published. It was from back in 2006. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was some lady from the South. I don't remember where, where she was from, but I'd said basically the same shit. I'm always talking <laughs> about language machines and the voice in your head and everything. And, she, I don't know. She was like 40 years old from Arkansas or something. Mm -hmm. And apparently I just, the, what I had written there really, really hit her. She got it. And she said, you know, she'd been aware of this for years and years and years, but never been able to articulate it. It was just this sort of weird, you know, uneasiness that she'd been feeling for like 40 years or, or not. Alan. And in any case, that just 
seeing it written out and, and hearing me talk about it, I brought it all to the fore for her. And we talked for about 20 minutes, but she was, it was such a beautiful conversation. She was so not into her ego. You know, she was so just open to, uh, to all this stuff and her own, her own inability to talk about it and how, how this really crystallized it for her, mm. you know, and then I, and I realized when I think back over my stuff, you know, or the conversations we have, there are these moments here and there that are really beautiful, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of it's just bullshit, but, but here's the interesting thing. I think the beauty that each of us finds and that each of the listeners finds is distinct. I mean, I think the fascinating thing about doing these kind of recordings is that you'll talk to people and they will, you know, they will reference in parts. In fact, I mean, even, yeah, even yeah. today we have a series of different parts that Lorraine has referenced. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe that's the idea is we should ask our listeners to uh, tell us which, you know, give us time codes, you know, from minute 730 mm. to 1412 mm. in this episode, you really address something that I like. Mm. You know, and, and tell us, tell us what actually, specifically, exactly <laughs> what it is that, that you found helpful. I guess and, my and, point would be that the, there are plurality of these things which are distinctly yes. different for all of our listeners. Well, and they're all valid. It's not like choosing. Yeah. I mean, the question is whether, whether we think, whether we agree with them. That's the only thing that really counts. Yeah. I mean, they can give us a thing and we think, what a dumb idea. That's dumb. Fuck that. You know, but, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, if, if, but yeah, other than that, if it makes sense to me, then that would be good enough, even though it's wildly different than from what, you know, from when, you know, other people would be saying, yeah, it's okay. They don't have to agree. So I've been looking for a name for this YouTube channel. And <laughs> through Stone Ape won't do it, huh? No, 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 this is okay. So let me state this again. Okay. The aim is to have a number of distinct entities that are interconnected but not funneling. So the idea is that Stone Ape will gather a, small, a group of people, the YouTube channel will grow, gather another group of people. I've got a couple of other ideas that I'd like to talk about today that will gather other groups of people. Mm -hmm. And then they can selectively choose, they can graze from the information, and ultimately, you know, all boats rise through these various things. To create a funnel specifically, I think, is problematic because you will lose a certain group immediately through the funnel creation, it's probably better just to... Well, but it still needs an identity of some sort. Well, this is an interesting... So that people thing. understand, oh, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to go here. Well, yes, but that, you, to get someone to listen to a three-minute video clip versus to get someone to listen to a two-hour podcast oh, no, versus that's to not... get someone to read something versus to get someone to do a variety of things. These all no, take that's different... why I like these short videos. Yes. Yeah. The, the idea of a three minute or even a six minute or whatever yeah. is just, yeah, I love that idea. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah. Contextually, my interest is not to repackage. Well, it is in part to repackage, but it's not to take the audio. It's to present the idea in a format that removes itself from because a lot of these ideas and a lot of these moments, which is another crit critique I'll put out there associated mm. with this moment idea, relate to actually an evolution of conversation, which can take 20 minutes. It can take multiple yeah. recordings. Well, that's why it's different for different people. Exactly. You know, it, t it takes a certain set of assumptions and questions going into it. Th mm. That's why I think you need multiple of these things because you got lots of different exactly. people out exactly. there who are going to respond differently. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, I was on Facebook. 
And I was, I followed, perhaps I'm, I've, I've since confirmed this, that I seem to be the only person in the world who's actually following these kind of linguistic ideas. But, um, on Facebook now, you have these new links that are cropping up, typically with an image and, uh, some kind of discussion. And then it will say, the reason will amaze you, or you'll be astonished to find out why, or <laughs> all these kind of things. And this is now, probably not. <laughs> this, well, this is interesting, actually. Because my experience with those things, now I'm sensitive to the language because I've seen it so many yeah. times. It's funny. I haven't seen any of this. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I spend hours a day on you Facebook. You probably just mute these things. Well, I have an ad reading. blocker. No, no, no. Guess... This isn't ads. This isn't ads. These are things that people are reposting. Oh, okay. All right. I, well, yeah, I don't look at And it's something I like, look at some of it. Let me give you a few yeah. examples. Okay. So a bunch of Russian guys crash their car into an ice pond. And the photo is of a partially submerged car. So, so one of your friends, you're saying, posted this link yes. to, to this thing. Okay. Yeah. To, in my Facebook feed. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it says something like, see what the guy does next with a stick. The reason will amaze you. Oh, <laughs> okay. I and this is, this is a form now. Which oh, is yeah, sure. That's a, it's a sales technique. It's exactly. a marketing technique, of course. So, yeah. Yeah, get you to make that click. Exactly. Absolutely. So yeah, I have decided. Yeah, we need to use that. Yes. I have decided to create a YouTube channel called The Reason Will Amaze You. <laughs> or how about You'll Be Amazed? Well, it's um, uh, Reason Will Amaze is the conjunction of that that I'm putting in okay. URLs and things like that. Okay. So I'm I'm interested to see if this, because my view is, <laughs> the standard Stone Age listener is so sufficiently jaded that no reason will amaze them. That's right, yeah. I'm actually fishing for a completely different group of people. Yeah, right, people who, who actually think they're going to get amazed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, those are the naive, yeah, those are the beginners. We want to get them exactly. too. Absolutely. Exactly. So, yeah, this notion of a web is really an idea that each distinct point that is interconnected needs to have something very different and very interesting in order to bring people in. Yeah, it has to be worthy for damn sure. I mean, not necessarily for everybody, but for somebody. Somebody yes. out there has got to look at that and go, damn, <laughs> I'm really glad I listened to that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm already gathering together topics, and I think I well, probably... this is, you know, this is perfect to get uh, our listeners involved in this. So that's interesting, because my view is that I'm, initially at least, creating this thing independently with the view that there are topics that interest me yeah. that relate to my own. You see, the element that is missing here is my own reviewing of YouTube, my own sense associated with the kind of ebbs and flows of YouTube. Yeah, which is maybe we should just different. go ahead and do what you think is what you need to do. Exactly. I mean, you know, screw that, you know. Well, <laughs> Who cares what other people are doing? But, well... I mean, you know enough to know well, this. Yeah, it, you could spend six months doing a, an extensive study and maybe learn even a little more. That's but, not the point I'm making. Okay. My, my view is that the extensive study has been undertaken over the past couple couple of years worth of surveying yeah i have a relatively good understanding of the direction yeah. that i'd like this thing to take and um yeah it's just a matter of enacting it which requires uh I and have a, patient too i think certainly. that's a big part of it yeah. because to, to really build an audience a community is going to take time certainly. certainly so that is uh part two of the possibilities the third part 
is something that I've been advocating for you to do for a considerable period of time. And I just thought, well, this is, why don't I actually do this as well? Mm-hmm. And that is to produce a booklet. Ah, yeah. Which yeah. I'm, um, you know, I'm working towards about 17 pages and then I'll see. That's a good size. An additional, yeah. you know, yeah. a few more just to round it out. But or maybe size. cut it back a little exactly. bit even. Exactly. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I've been looking at that again. One of the first things I wrote in my new journal beginning this year is, Am I going to publish something this year? Yes. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be much. A short, you know, like I say, 20 pages, you know, that, yeah. that, that's that, you know, if you can cover something adequately and usefully, then that's a good thing to do. Mm. There was a phenomenon when I started Noble Ape, which was associated with unifying various kind of, you know, existential bits of work that I had done, you know, and, I guess I'm in a similar period of time in my life where I've done so many different little bits and pieces, particularly professionally. I'd also now have a pretty well-defined kind of professional career that doing all these other things as well makes me think that I need to basically unify this Mm. into something, which I guess is your project as well. Well, yeah, really it is. Yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. Now it's time to really package it, market it, put it together into a recognizable entity for people to grasp more or less quickly. Yes. Yeah. I've always resisted that, but, uh, well, I haven't needed to do it because I was working mostly on trying to figure out what the hell was going on. You know, now it's about, uh, trying to do something with whatever it is that I figured out. Yes. And that's a whole different enterprise. Yeah. In my own thinking, the, I mean, the ebbs and flows associated with the comic book project and then the time that I've put in to do the rewrite, and I'm nearly... <laughs> the comic book, yes, that. Yes, I'm nearly done with the rewrite, which means I can start revisiting the comic book in the new year. Yeah. And I've done it in such a way that I actually know... It'll be really interesting this time, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This time it's got to, it's got to work distinctly differently than it did yeah, last time. I, I imagine, yes. <laughs> but also I've reaffirmed that what had previously been two separate works that I'd intertwined should exist as two separate works. Yeah. And contracting that work to be done is going to be done in that way where yeah. the second work actually becomes the primary work to get it initially to a stage with a comic book where I can put my toe in the water associated with Kickstarter and actually selling a comic book yeah. through that. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I think 2014, the main thing is just maintaining momentum, I think. Because certainly what I've found in my professional life in parallel is that time has become an increasingly scarce commodity. Yeah. And that I need to, you know, define define my work even when it's not you know even when it's not a a scarce quantity it it, i mean i have all the time in the world compared to most people Mm -hmm. i still it's still the same problem Mm. is how am i going to use that time Mm. you know and for me it's an or it's it's really still getting some clarity greater clarity than i have now on what it what it is i'm actually doing you know how to put it together into some sort of format that makes sense to other people. I understand it, but I don't, you know, I haven't, I don't have a need to make it simple for me, you know, but for other people, if you want to put the ideas in the world, then yeah, for me, that's, that's the struggle is to somehow take the stuff. I'm quite familiar with it being undefined (laughs) or quite, you know, comfortable with that. But for other people, that's not going to work. Yes. The first question I'd like to, kick off from a listener comes from Bob Mottram. Bob Mottram has returned to Facebook recently, in large part actually 
I think, to, you know, rekindle the interaction that we had previously, but also to throw out a lot of material that I'm really enjoying. He's been posting uh, the Bristol Anarchist group, I guess they're called. They're associated with a bookshop called Hydra in Bristol. And they are... I watched that video, yes. uh, the, the historian about the mutinies and stuff. Yeah. That was fascinating. No, I think it's very, very interesting uh, to... I, my view with regards to the First World War has always been, well, it's been reaffirmed periodically, that the royal family in the UK was in really <laughs> dire straits leading up to the First World War. They had a series of quite, I mean, very similar to the contemporary royal family, they had a series of quite embarrassing revelations associated with how um, cognitively incompetent they were. <laughs> and there was an indication that there could actually be substantial social unrest leading into the, you know, 19-teens. Mysteriously, some guy gets killed in Sarajevo, and then everyone's marched off to war. <laughs> yeah, and right, yeah. The phenomena associated with the First World War, I had always viewed that the revolution, particularly in labor circles, was about to occur. It would have occurred sometime in the 19-teens. And certainly the royal family was very well aware of this and basically orchestrated the First World War. The history that we've given with regards to the First World War is really very curious, <laughs> and it yeah, has so yeah. many holes that it uh, really yeah. begs for any. Well, kind again, of it gets back to the whole thing: is all we've got is these stories, yes. <laughs> you know, and and people think the story is the truth, you know. Yes. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was fascinating. I I hadn't. I mean, I don't really care about that, except that I mean, it doesn't change anything for me knowing it, but. But uh, just, again, seeing what different stories exist and how people just, you know, take the standard story mm. and that's it. You know, yeah, mm. Sarajevo, the Archduke of whatever it was, mm. got assassinated and then there was World War One. Yes. <laughs> but the interesting thing with the Bristol group is that they're not concentrating on the prior to First World War period. Uh -huh. They're concentrating through the First World War, and they're providing some interesting and somewhat spiny accounts, particularly associated with, um, you know, the revolution that occurred in the Soviet Union or yeah. Russia into the Soviet Union over yeah. that period, and particularly the other royal families desperate attempts to try to, you know, reclaim the throne in, in Russia slash the Soviet Union over that period. Yeah. But also it produces a very interesting um, narrative associated with human beings. It's very kind of uplifting, for me at least. And well, that so many people were... Um Apparently, you know, rebelling yeah. <laughs> against the system yeah. back way back then. That's yeah. uh, like I say, and we've never heard that. I've never heard about any of that stuff before. If you look on Wikipedia, you do actually find some of the information that's presented. I'm not sure if yeah. you saw the stuff about the First World War or you saw the stuff associated with seven unknown revolutionaries. Which no, no, also... it was the one about the, the near the end, I think between uh, 1915 and 1917, yes. about the end of the war and the rebellions and yes. the strikes and yes. all the things that were going on in Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. on on the fronts as well. I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah, and the yeah, and the Christmas stuff. Yeah, was well, the Christmas on. stuff we've always. I mean, I've always yeah, but yeah, but that you know, it, it, the way it was portrayed is yeah. is just this one nice little thing that happened. Yeah, <laughs> you not, know, not as not yeah. as something quite as widespread as it might have been. You yeah, know? but the, the implicit nature of 
telling you know the generals to fuck off versus actually <laughs> explicitly telling the generals to fuck off is a very interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm really I'm really enjoying it. I posted to their um, YouTube channel, and I'm looking forward to getting as much as possible. I've subscribed to it as well. So hats yeah. off to Bob Mottram for yeah, uh, that supplying was interesting. some interesting and subversive uh, YouTube yeah. Yeah. footage. It's funny because I I almost didn't watch it uh, just because I I thought yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know that our stories are bullshit and that, you know, but now I'm just going to get someone else's story, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and of course that is what it is. It's Ooh. another story, Without you know? yeah. but, but it was the damn interesting story and one I hadn't heard before. Yeah. And, um, we no longer have access to people who are actually part of the first world war. So all we have now is a series of stories. And when the stories are curious and contradictory, which is the official story, associated with a variety of things, not just the First World War. Just about everything, just about actually. Everything, actually, <laughs> yeah. yes. Uh, it really, 9-11 and Kennedy go yes. well in that. <laughs> in, in that. To name a few. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. So it, it struck me that um, it's important to have this kind of narrative. I mean, I was looking through my books. I did a, a trip to the local... Uh, I don't know, charity donation place today. And I went through a collection of my father's books and kept, continued to keep some of his more revolutionary texts with the view that I've read some of them and should read the remainder. Yeah. It's important intellectually. I'm thinking about this very much associated with the phenomena of a booklet as well. That when you create a booklet, you can't do that in isolation from the variety of booklets that have been created historically. Oh yeah. And yeah. the way in which you frame a booklet is very different than the way in which you frame yeah. an article or a book. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to pub. Well, the thing, yeah, with the the internet changes everything. I mm. mean, just to, to be able to publish an essay, a four page essay, mm. you know, you can put it up there. Mm. Who cares? You know. <laughs> anyway, Bob actually asks a question. Ah, Bob's Bob, question thank is: Thank you. If advertising had never become a significant part of the web, then how do you think the web would have evolved, and what yeah. might it look like now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you're really asking is if capitalism was gone, <laughs> because to talk about eliminating uh, advertising by itself mm. is is unimaginable. You simply. Can't. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, think, oh, really? I have a view of capitalism, which is distinctly advertising to me is traditionally and even in its most current electronic state, even. I was at one stage sympathetic to Facebook advertising because they did put me in contact with some interesting. Their ads were pretty people. good. They were yeah. pretty well focused. Yeah. yeah. They've somehow lost that recently. I think. Have they? Uh. The money has changed. What have you? But, um, <laughs> the thing that interests me about advertising is I consider it, although obviously it's, it's a central part of modern capitalism. It need not be. I mean, no, I agree with you. The idea of getting information out to the people who are interested in learning about it is essential. Mm. You know, and that, but, but again, separating that from money, mm. I, that's the issue is the fact that it's, it's done in order to sell me a new underarm deodorant mm. instead of, uh, the latest guy who's from, some, from Botswana who wrote an article on epistemology that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I agree with you that advertising again. It's capitalism is the issue for me, not advertising. Advertising it's, it's, is fine. It's it's capitalism through waste. So, for example, if you look at print material, I'm not sure. I mean, you you talk about um, science news. Mm. I was I've been in a couple of doctors' offices over the past couple of weeks, and there was a, a magazine which nominally is about um, local Northern Californian houses. 
mm-hmm. which interests me. Picked up the magazine. It was about three quarters mispitched ads. <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. there were articles that were clearly written by people in their early 20s who had no knowledge associated with building, uh, you know, basic construction. Yeah. In, in contrast now, I've bought uh, three small house books, which I thumbed through repeatedly. In fact, I've actually given one small house book to my stepmother to indicate just the, you know, the interest that I had yeah. in this phenomena. Yeah. And nothing like that was in this magazine. Instead, it was ads for, um, you know, drugs for blood pressure, really? a variety of other really curious things That's that had nothing yeah. to do with Houses yeah. in Northern California. And I this was a printed magazine, a printed magazine, and it looked, how many pages was it? Well, that's interesting as well. It wasn't that many pages. It probably would have only been 60 to 90 pages. It wasn't a yeah. sizable read. Yeah, okay. So, well, 60s, that's still pretty good for mm, a magazine. Well, right? I think what's happened with printed advertising is there must have been, there was at least 100 years where you could put any possible kind of ad in most in, in publications, <laughs> and right. it was still seen as being efficient. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You're getting to a lot of people, you know. Yeah. This is no longer the case. And I yeah. think the thing that interests me is actually that the internet has been instrumental in destroying advertising. Yeah. It's been yeah. instrumental yeah, in I'm destroying. Yeah, I'm surprised that magazine even exists. Exactly. It's been instrumental yeah. in destroying traditional forms of print media. And it's been pretty instrumental in destroying advertising in the traditional print media. The phenomenon that I'm missing, which I think is coming up, I'm interested in this actually, is I rarely go to sites. For example, I use Google News all the time. But if I click through to a link and I get an ad immediately, sometimes it's yeah. full page. Oh, ads. I know it. I know it. Yeah, I'm gone immediately. Close that page, get the next link. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I and still the same thing. Until yeah. Google starts, Google needs to, and it may not, it may be required third-party developers, but there will come a point where I get sufficiently frustrated with this that I will stop yeah. using Google News. Yeah, I know. It's ter- well, at least YouTube lets you skip the ad after like three or five seconds. Mm. In some I, cases. Some, well, some in cases some cases, yeah. No, it, it, no, no. If, it, if it forces yeah. me, it, well, it depends. Sometimes I'll, mm. I'll go through it. But yeah, that really is beginning to piss me off. Yes. The thing that I found through, it's only... <laughs> but see, I don't think that it's not adver- that's not advertising. That's capitalism. Well, there are other forms of capitalism that don't require advertising. Really? Yeah. Well, don't require it, but, uh, well, really, like what? Well, <laughs> I don't get it. How, for, example, why would... for example, I when I was in the UK, I haven't done this in the US, I used to order my groceries online. And when I would go to the grocery site, I would order the groceries online. And on one occasion, they put up a travel ad. And mm-hmm. I complained to them. I said, I am paying money to use your site to get groceries delivered. Yeah. You, your you're advertising money you're using is, not, me. Yeah. is not worth me not using your service. Yeah. And yeah. you need to change that. Right. And I made and- that representation very clearly. I was part of a focus group, and I also followed it up with correspondence. That ad never appeared again. Well, that ad was some other ads or no, what? No. No, they realized they took- exactly what I was saying, that it was a yeah. functional service. Similarly, yeah. you're paying for the service, yeah. I mean, that's the point. Yeah. You don't Look at want- Amazon. Amazon yeah. doesn't 
Where in my experience, at least, I'm an Amazon Prime member, so I might have a slightly different experience than the general Amazon, but I don't receive any advertising for Amazon. And I use it now more to buy even very basic things that I yeah. used to buy through other things because yeah. I don't get any advertising through it. Yeah, 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 I agree. So my view is actually the advertising that has appeared on the internet has been fundamentally suboptimal. I still actually, I, I went through a period of testing Google Ads on various pages. I still have Google yeah. Ads on some of the sites, but it's only because I don't use those sites frequently and I don't get back enough to change them. I pulled yeah. Google Ads of almost everything that I had connections with yeah. just because you don't you don't make any money through it for a start but secondly and the, it annoys everybody exactly. the interface <laughs> yeah. is so laborious that you know it's not worth yeah. doing it and also the kind of advertising was really mispitched for example Douglas Adams um is there an artificial god had a whole lot of christian advertising on it they didn't realize that this was an atheist <laughs> thing they just started well good if the christians it. want to pay their money for that cool yeah <laughs> if they so, want to, that shows you something about the future of of christianity yeah. <laughs> yeah. bob asks specifically if we can imagine well i mean my experience of the internet early on at least was completely ad free. Sure, in the beginning, uh, yeah, it was, and it was a right. it was a very interesting time. I but it was very limited too. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it was you know limited's interesting. I mean, but you go back to the days of Gopher. You know, yeah, remember yeah, Gopher? Of course. Okay, I mean, you but know, the thing is that in order to have a definitive source, then in order to go to the Gopher, I used to go to NASA quite a bit. Yeah, well, you could go to all sorts of. It was fascinating. Yeah. But who the hell knew what the hell any of it meant? There was no well, chaff there. There was only wheat. You know, the, the yeah, nature yeah. of information as it was presented there yes, was right. Yeah, that it had been picked over, yeah. and the best was there. Yeah. Well, you and you had to know what you wanted too. I mean, there were no search engines. There, there was nothing. You know, you just well, if you knew what you were looking for, yeah. you were okay. Otherwise, I just sort of rambled around and stumbled into shit. Mm. You know? mm. Yeah, I. I found sites like Hyperreal, which I think Hyperreal.org, and that had a large kind of psychedelic rave culture thing. In fact, I posted... What year was this? 94, 95. Mm -hmm. I posted a photograph of my brother's rabbit, and it was memorialized in various rave posters. I then posted a guy, uh, when I moved onto campus in uh, 95, I posted a guy who was a really like dysfunctional, funky bowler, he had like this 10 pin bowling style that was just really bizarre. And I took a couple of in motion photos of him bowling and posted <laughs> it to the site to see if that also would be memorialized in a rave poster. Um, I, that didn't go so far, but the rabbit one was amazing. I mean, I had various like strange iterations of this rabbit appear on various rave posters. Yeah, yeah. It was a different age. I think it's oh, important yeah, that, yeah. you know, the narrative exists. That really was the Wild West. Yeah. <laughs> and back then I used to, I mean, to, actually, I got on I got onto the internet in 93, and I got in through a bulletin board where I could post files into... Well, it wasn't the internet then. What was it then? I mean, what, ARPANET or... or well, it was listserv. It was a variety of... Yeah, there wasn't any existed. one thing. Yeah, there was just all these different... Places, yeah, yeah. Isn't that the internet currently as well? Well, yeah, but it's, yeah, but you one piece of software does it all, <laughs> you know. So from my yeah, from my experience, you know, all I know is I start up Safari and go to bookmarks and follow links and end up at places. But back then, 
uh, yeah, it was, God, well, it was very, it was just, yeah, more mysterious, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> to me, anyway, it was. Yeah. And it was just cool that you could get connected to all these things that computers in Japan or Russia or Germany or Connecticut or someplace and, and look at the shit they had posted there. It was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different world back then. And our email, I mean, I had email before anybody had email. There was nobody, to, I didn't have anybody to email. Yeah. <laughs> but I had an email account and it was great. <laughs> so about two months ago, because I use an independent email service from Noble Ape, I don't use Google or any of the standard email services, um, my iPhone stopped working with email and I did a few corrections for it, but the latest version just has trouble maintaining the certificate, so I can't collect email. So I go through email maybe once every other day now, and I've realized that there's still a small but core group of people that communicate with me via email. Mm. But their emails are so infrequent that I don't need to check it on a regular basis. In fact, I apologize to Model Rail Radio listeners last night because I really don't check email with a frequency or a method. I used to check email methodically, respond accordingly, all this kind of stuff. Now I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. Library of spam. Oh, the pants I ordered on Amazon have been sent. Oh, you know, I mean, all this kind yeah. of stuff. I just hate email. I just don't yeah. even, I mean, it's, it's something I do once a day, basically. You know, I look through it. It's most, I don't even look at my spam shit anymore. Mm-hmm. I used to go through the spam and see if it caught anything. Yeah. I don't even care anymore. Yeah. You know, just dump it. And then I, I may have one or two things left and they're usually nothing I'm interested in. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how email has just dropped off for both of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, professionally, Skype is yeah. it, man. Skype yeah. is the center. You yeah. know, everybody I know is on Skype. Yeah, professionally, email is still pretty important to what I do. And yeah. it's funny actually because I now think of it almost exclusively. Well, let me ask you: do you, you must you must have people uh, that you contact a lot that you that you use Skype or something else with, right? That Maybe you don't Facebook. use email or Facebook. Facebook. Okay, so you can use Facebook. Yeah, and you use the audio or just the text part of it because uh, i've never been able to get the audio to work have yeah, you i've never tried it i've never okay. tried it. I've, I've limited interest because of the kind of haggard and generally uh i don't know malformed nature of my uh, physical interaction and my view is that text is probably text and audio are two ideally suited media for me um and yeah video and this kind of stuff i do with my family um i'm doing with my brothers now more i do with my father almost exclusively in terms of communication. But aside from that, it's pretty well text, you know, text is it. Yeah, I like text. Text is for exchanging URLs and things. I, I just don't, I don't feel satisfied at all unless I get to talk to somebody, <laughs> you know. I, I just need to, I, yeah, I need to hear their, there's a spontaneity that's there in talk that just, you know, when you're reading text, they've had time to think about it. Mm. And that makes sense. That's a good, that's a good thing in many circumstances. So text is really crucial. But usually what I'm interested in is a more spontaneous, uh, exchange of <laughs> something or other. And, and I only get that with voice. Mm. That's why I could not imagine ever having any kind of working relationship with somebody strictly through text. That just, that would never work for me. Yeah, but that's been the nature of my professional life. No, I know. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. This, this is just my particular thing. You know? In fact, one of the most interesting things that's happened in the past year was when I discovered this fellow at the fruit factory who was 10 years ago was one of the interns that worked on Noble Ape. The only way that could have happened was through a telephone call. 
or yeah. a physical interaction. And he, you know, he asked it very gingerly at the end of a telephone call because that's what you can do over a telephone call. You can't do that over work-related formalized email. But I, I feel obligated that we need to actually respond in some way to Bob's question. <laughs> that. Can, can, can what, we imagine? What was the question? The question was, if advertising had never become a significant part of the web, then how do you think the web would have evolved and what might it look like now? Yeah. Well, do you want to say anything? Because, I mean, to me, the answer is clear. It, it's not – I don't think advertising is the issue. I think it, it's – capitalism yeah i feel distinctly it. different about that i mean my view is that capitalism could flourish on the internet without advertising i think what what has well, happened, okay what oh. has happened is that advertising has been commoditized in such a fashion that it no longer has value either for the advertisers or the entities um but if that was true they wouldn't be advertising no it's just a long tail people are really oh, phenomenally okay. stupid associated with these kinds so, of things so you think really we're going to see this shit clear up over time it it has well, to. eventually i yeah, yeah i think you're right i think it does they have to realize that yeah. this is stupid yes <laughs> yeah well, you may be right that's that's interesting uh okay maybe capitalism yeah well i can say but again if we if you talk about advertising without capitalism, then then it really is just about getting information to people who uh, it might be useful for. And that is Lorraine's question. Lorraine asks, <laughs> Lorraine. Herrick, what would advertising look like among earthlings? Ah, yes. Well, it would just be if anybody has – that's simple, it seems to me. If anybody has anything they want to share with the world, they they share it. And anyone who's interested in it will find it, period. I mean, how much simpler can it get? <laughs> Connor Sidesbowen asks a variety of different questions. I haven't, I don't think I've picked all his questions, or maybe I have actually for, uh, for today's recording. But anyway, he starts with, are there aspects of your life that you would prefer to be controlled by a simulated you? What would you put on autopilot? What uh, things deserve felt experience? Ah, uh, good questions. Yeah. Should I start with this, Aaron? Yeah, go ahead. So my view is that I am a simulated me, and I think a majority of my life as I reflect on it appears to have been quite substantially on autopilot. It's an interesting phenomenon. Through my professional life, I'm frequently asked to, not in a hostile sense, but just through the nature of the way these things are done, describe what I have done and justify my work. And this is something which is pretty fundamental to what I do professionally. But it's also something that I'm very conscious of as I'm doing the acts, which creates a kind of interesting, almost third-person perspective on everything that I do with the view mm. that I have to justify it after the fact. <laughs> yeah. This also yeah. changes, I think, the quality of experience through doing these things. And it means oftentimes, even outside of my professional life, when people ask me questions associated with why I've done specific things, I can usually give pretty detailed and thought-out reasons because, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I have to remain in that state pretty well kind of continuously in a kind of readiness state. The notion of felt experience through this is very interesting. One topic that I wanted to talk about that doesn't appear in my notes is the idea of mentoring, which I really did want to talk about in this recording, because um, there are now half a dozen people, in large part through Stonate, that have come to me and asked for various mentoring assistance, which is an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, people can put themselves so openly in, in 
I, I, I'm always astounded when people can approach somebody looking for a mentor, mm. you know, who, whose ego isn't into, I'm, I'm so cool. I already know everything, mm. you know, uh, that, that's just be- a beautiful thing to say. I think also the, the nature of coming to really difficult problems and needing advice. I've been hesitant in the past to provide advice to people. And really there's almost, it occurred yesterday with a mutual friend of ours. And there was a kind of ongoing dance associated with, should I give advice? In this well, all you can do or, is share your experience. Well, that's my, it. I mean, really, in you general, can... In general, my experience with regards to a variety of the things that people want to talk about has been relatively brutalizing. It's not necessarily a positive thing in a well, general they sense. asked. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and in the case of this individual, I told them, and they were very receptive to what I said, and I think and they said that they want to talk to me on a kind of ongoing basis associated with these kind of things. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, my view is that that is a, a positive outcome from a situation that was pretty... Yeah, I th- I'm really always stunned when... I mean, there's so much pressure in this civilization to present yourself as someone who's really got it all together, mm. you know, uh, and, and to be able to say, listen, I need some help in this particular area. And I think maybe you can help me, mm-hmm. uh, just strikes me as, I mean, I'm just thrilled when I run into somebody like that. Yeah. I just think, God, that's, I, I wish I had been that, that, un, that intelligent when I was their age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting role. But returning to Connor Seitzman's question, I guess my view is that a large part of my life, and part of this is the kind of midlife analysis that I'm doing currently, um, relates to the fact that how much of my life has actually been what Connor describes as felt experience versus just surviving quite literally in a particular situation, working through the problems that are presented in a fashion where, you know, ideally I minimize the stress on myself, but ultimately that I leave the situation intact. And I think it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting point of analysis. I was always fascinated, even as a relatively young child, associated with this notion of free will. And this comes through this as well, that, I mean, the the distinction that Connor makes, I find interesting because I, I consider myself a simulated entity. So the notion that through that I have some kind of descriptive free will, it's not something that I've divorced myself from, but it does... It does kind of strike me that there's a, you know, a gradient of possible answers through this, and Connor is just kind of picking selectively in terms of his analysis. What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, question? read me the question again. The question is, well, actually, there are a series of questions. Are there aspects of your life that you would prefer to be controlled by a simulated you? What would you put on autopilot? Yeah, that's the part I, I was, I don't really understand the first part. Uh, I mean, it, without a, some sort of definitions there, th- th- I could take that in a million different directions. But the second part about autopilot, I think is crucial. And, uh, I would say up until the time I was 21, I was, there was nothing but autopilot. Okay. That was who I was. I was, I was on autopilot. Alan Watts made me aware of the autopilot. Uh, and it's for a long time, it seemed to me the idea was to not, was to get off autopilot to actually be conscious and present. But the more I thought about that and over years of experience, what I realized is that actually the process seems to be, you start off having to be conscious about something, like learning to drive a car. You know, in the beginning, 
you're conscious of every goddamn thing, you know, the, watch the rear view, you know, all those things, you know. Uh, but eventually, y- you develop an autopilot that deals with that shit so you can drive around and have a conversation with somebody and, and, and it's okay. So it's a good thing. The question is the quality of your autopilot. See, that's the issue. Uh, if, and I, and what I would suggest is that most human beings, autopilots just are terribly dysfunctional. And it's, so it's not about, I mean, you have to be conscious occasionally for sure. But the, the challenge to me is to create really good workable autopilots so that you can, uh, you know, a lot of the things can just get handled by your autopilot. If it doesn't handle it, then you need a routine that calls me back and says, Hey, this ain't working. Uh, you better come over here and take a look at this, you know, but it would seem that the idea is to put as much stuff on autopilot. If you've got a good autopilot, as you can, and then that frees you to to what I don't know do other stuff. <laughs> Amen. So Connor, you, we basically wandered through Connor's other questions, but I'm going to ask them. Just I love that question. There. I think that's an important question. This thing about autopilot. Autopilot is not bad. The question is whether your autopilot is really functional or not. Mm-hmm. Are there societal functions which might benefit from gamification, the systemization of reward structures, and experience flow? Read that again. Are there societal functions which might benefit from gamification, systemization <laughs> of reward structures, and experience flow? Are there any that are not? This is exactly. I, I, I was hesitant <laughs> to even read this question because I thought that uh, basically yeah. we've already touched on that. Yeah, already. yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right on. <laughs> mm. Similarly, this question we've also discussed. Do either of you feel a great need to provide utility to the species? Do you think. Uh, the podcast is providing utility. Uh-huh. And then he notes, I find it useful. The question is not meant to be negative. Mm, yeah. So I think we've already discussed that perfectly. <laughs> well, again, yeah, I th- again, it has to do with my story and my agenda. You know, I think these ideas that we discuss are important. And I think uh, there are people who may not have articulated, like that discussion I listened to with that lady from Arkansas or wherever she was from. You know, there are people who are thinking, who, who are aware on some level of this stuff, but have not been able to articulate it to themselves yet. And uh, those, are, to a large extent, are, are, you know, would be people I'm hoping, you know, to find here, you know, who ha- somehow hear this and, and that says, yeah, there's something there. So, Lorraine- so I think that's, yeah, so that's, I'm sorry. So, yeah, so that's clearly... Uh, you know, serving a purpose as far as I can say. I think this is important work. You know, we're putting ideas out there that are part of the butterfly, not part of the caterpillar. And, uh, for those people who are, you know, for those who have ears to hear, <laughs> good. <laughs> Go on. I'm Lorraine sorry. asks a series of questions. And I'm wondering if some of these questions would neatly fall, fall into one of your wine breaks, so I could answer the ones that are Well, no, I've just still got a half a glass here. That's what I'm thinking. So I'm okay. thinking I'll do the later questions, which are general, and then in a wine break, I will try to cover... <laughs> Listen, you're the man, so uh, I'll, I'm leaving those decisions to you. Very good. Very good. Ah, this is a beautiful question, and it's one that is very topical with some of my thinking. These questions have been good this evening, too, yes. by the way, I think. Yes. This is uh, good. Well, Thanks. we told them to up their game, and they've up their yeah, game. Yeah, they're doing it. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so, Lorraine asks, the whole idea that science is just an idea doesn't sit well with me. 
perhaps it would be interesting to hear Tom defend the scientific method as an important response to the complete relativism that faces us without it. But that may just be me projecting. Yeah. Okay. That's not too difficult, is it? So I want to take a counter argument here because I guess my, when this has been discussed previously, I've returned to the kind of platonic idea of science, which is very different than the scientific method. And I think what we see with contemporary science is so far removed from, you know, even what we saw from science in the 1920s that I don't necessarily want to argue for the positive nature of contemporary science as we see it. But I think as the notion of technology in my childhood, computers, what have you, was very important to motivate me, the notion of science as an entity, an abstract entity, I think will be extremely important for motivating the next generation or two or three um, in terms of perhaps critically uh, going after what we currently have in place as science. So, yeah, I'm not really interested in... I mean, it's an interesting argument that you have these two components here. You either have, you know, wild relativism on one hand, or you have the scientific method on the other hand. I think contemporary science is far more about um, kind of monastic traditions and cronyism and, um, you know, the whole notion of big science in terms of, you know, large hedron collider et al., is distinctly different from the notion of science that I'm giving a talk at the SETI Institute in March 2014. And I'm going to talk about um, taking the ideas of noble ape and putting them in space, either through robotics or through other means. When I gave a similar talk at Stanford Research in 2009, one of the folks there who worked at Stanford Research said, it's appalling that you are not a professional scientist, that you're not paid to do this work with noble ape, and that you do this as an after-hours, like, hobby project. It's wrong, actually. There's something distinctly wrong with an environment where you are doing this after-hours and not doing this as your day job. I don't think I'll get that kind of response at SETI. I may get that kind of response at SETI, but I'm very mindful of the stuff that I do with Noble Oak, particularly when I meet certain quote-unquote scientists who are, on one hand, either extremely dismissive or, on the other hand, stunned that this work is being done independently of you know traditional well what exists today in terms of science i think the role of the independent hobbyist scientist has never been more important i think the same is true with regards to journalism i think the same is true with regards to a number of things that we are confronted well it's always gets down to an individual whether they're with the system or not well it's always somebody some guy who's doing it the problem is within the system currently, the somebody, some guy who's doing it is doing something which is distinctly different yeah, from, yeah. Yeah. I'm hesitant to say, but what probably should be done. Yeah, and no, the nature I, I, of funding yeah. sources yeah. and all the kinds of things that pollute contemporary science means yeah. that I will not, in this instance, be a strong advocate for you know what you might read in science news. In fact, my experience as an independent thinker going through life decisions from you know a teenager to present day has never made me sympathetic to going into academia. Yeah. No, I left, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, I had no interest in that. But I don't see them as a as problem. I, I still think their work is good, too. I think, uh, I think our, it, again, to me, it's a social issue. It's not a scientific issue. It's, it's, it's the va- basically that we got a planet full of unconscious language monkeys. That's the problem. You solve that problem and all these other issues will take care of themselves. 
Well, yeah, I mean, again, I argue from a slightly different perspective. My view is that there are ways, there are independent ways of solving a series of these problems, which ideally would be solved through the methods that you describe, but can also be solved independently. Yeah, but those problems don't really, again, those kinds of pr- solutions, it seems to me, don't really work. I mean, they solve one problem, but they usually create three new ones. Here's an example, Aaron. Here's an example. And maybe this is the case associated with that assertion. But if you and I were sitting, you know, on a street in the 1820s, or in a church, as many people were in these circumstances. (laughs) Well, even a coffee house, in fact, maybe. We were really cool. Slavery. (laughs) You would assert that the same revolutionary change in linguistic cognitive revolutionary change that you were prescribing would be needed to stop slavery. I don't wait a minute. I just you lost me completely on that. Try that again. There are world problems that have solved themselves through other mechanisms up until this point. And I think historically, if we were in the 1820s looking at something like slavery and we were yeah. represented as the same people, let's just draw a line under that idea that you might argue that slavery was a similar thing that required the same kind of linguistic cognitive translation revolution (laughs) what have you in order to cease it from occurring and until this had occurred oh yeah impossible to address things like slavery oh i'm not saying it's impossible to address any of these specific issues it's just that i'm looking at systemic issues rather than dealing with specific symptoms Mm. That's all. No, there, no, it doesn't mean they can't be solved one by one. I, I think they can be, but, uh, I don't think in the long run that's going to be sufficient. I think we need a systemic view of the whole thing and to work towards that rather than just focusing on solving this issue and that issue and whatever other issues come up. I mean, I think we need to deal with those issues, but again, I think we also need to have a, a sort of systemic approach to it. Hmm. We're not through with that one because I wanted to say something, but I don't remember what the question is. Okay, let's go back to the question. Lorraine asks for you, this whole idea that science is just an idea doesn't sit well with me, as I've discussed with Heron. Perhaps it would be interesting to hear Tom defend the scientific method as an important response to the complete relativism that faces us. Hey, I'm the one that's drinking. (laughs) Well, I'm the one that's trying to breathe through these questions, and sometimes it's difficult. Okay. I gotta choose my pauses wisely, and there aren't any. Given Sometimes to me. you just run out of air. Yes. And it's always over relativism. Because you need a little bit extra air to say relativism. But if relativism is like in the third line without a full stop or any kind of break, then relativism is what's gonna trip you up. There's no relativism to that problem. Anyway. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this whole thing about uh, it's only a story, I, I'm a little surprised that, that Lorraine would have a problem with that. I, I, but, but on the other hand, no, I know that's that, – on some way that seems like a big leap. But I don't – to me that just seems fundamental. We've got stories. Science – I would I, – I go that science is the best story we've come up with so far. It's, it's really good. It's done a lot. It's made our lives better. It's awesome. But it's still just a story. I don't see, I don't see any way out of that. Whether you like it or not, it's just a story. It exists in the domain of language, nowhere else. It's just a construction of human beings who are able to use language in that way. And, uh, and it's, like I say, it's the best we've come up with so far. That seems good enough to me. When you think of science, do you consider things like your Apple computer 
as being part of science. Yeah, well, technology yeah, and science are yeah are sort of the same sort of same. There's a, clearly a big overlap. No, yeah, technology is another issue that's clearly related to this, and uh, and I, and I suppose there are a number of different ways of parsing all this. You know, I don't. I, you know, I haven't really. I mean, I've I've thought about it before, and basically what I get at is depending upon the situation, uh, we can define our terms and make some sense out of it. But technology and science are related clearly, but. There's a difference, I guess, between sort of basic research, you know, this just trying to figure out what the hell is going on here and then trying to improve something and make it work better and to work within. So there's that whole idea of working within a paradigm to improve things. And then there's basic research, which is really not within a paradigm at all. It's just, you know, just looking at weird shit and seeing what's there. And then occasionally somebody stumbles into something that, leads to a paradigm change. Well, that's interesting, actually, because the thing that struck me as most curious spending time with scientists was how distinctly different they were from technologists, both in terms of their approach, but also in terms of the kind of problems that they created for themselves. Well, it depends on what you mean by science. You say you were... Uh, the biologists, engineers, well, scientific engineers... Some were chemists, yeah, engineering, some were actually, I would say, is technology, not true. Physics. Well, except there's an academic. There's an academic part of that. Yeah, right. Technology. Yeah, but right. the thing that struck me through it was that the kinds of problems that they had created were. It's interesting, actually, that you talk about this notion of progress, this notion of improving, this notion of making things better in some way, or at least more powerful, or able to do different and more interesting calculations. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting phenomenon, which I would have thought should exist as a relatively central part of science as well. And I found completely, to the point of, I mean, I've used this example previously associated with the complexity problem for biologists that biologists aren't, or the ones I interacted with at least, weren't interested in actually having simulations that relate it to weather or, you know, even landscapes, even deformable bits of land that was too complicated for their biological models. And they kind of threw up their hands and said, sorry, this is too complicated for us to, you know, work through. We can't create, you know... One free variable problem. Well, yeah, that, that's kind of more complexity. like ecology than biology. Yeah, uh, biologists want to define them. Well, yeah. I know that's what I'm saying so, is that the biologists are limiting their yes. their just like well, we all have to do that though. We no, all we have can't. to. You sure, we do. Sure. You can't. You can, I can't. But, I only have so many minutes per day available to me. Exactly. I can't learn everything. I True. have to just make a decision However, about certain things that I'm going to study and yes. focus. You're not on. just going to do one of those things. You might. No, I do a do lot do of more. different things. No, yes. I do a lot of things, but still, I, there are a lot of things I just can't do. Exactly. There are a lot However, of places I just can't go. However, you choose to do at least more than one, and the notion that you would only do one. A detriment to all other areas of knowledge that may assist well, that's you. A, that, that's is a, a very curious choice. system. It's a personal choice that some some guy may be. Like I say, I love crows. I could see actually devoting my life to studying crows. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's pretty limited. Mm -hmm. But I can understand that. I could see just being obsessed with crows and uh, wanting to. Well, let me give you a practical example. A woman from Harvard gave a talk. It was one of the keynotes at the Artificial Life 13 conference. She was studying termites. She wanted to model termites as robots. 
and mm. she had a modeling method associated. Oh, yeah. That. That's a good one. She sh- showed two different termite mounds that were genetically different only by, you know, a small genetic difference. Yeah. And she said, you know, <laughs> I'm interested in looking at the termite mounds and why this genetic difference, which seems to be in no way related to the different mounds, produces different mounds. Oh, but of course it would. Yes. <laughs> I went up to her afterwards and I said, I suspect that this is to do with either thermal or pressure sensitivity, and it's relatively easy through Noble Ape to model this phenomena in three dimensions, and you could change the pressure and thermal characteristics, which would encourage yeah. the termites <laughs> potentially to build different mound types. She said to me, that is probably at least seven years away from the research that I'm doing currently. Yeah. I can't comprehend that currently. And my thought was, and I had some email correspondence yeah. with her following, I cannot imagine a circumstance where someone came to me and said, I have this environment which should be able to do what you need to do, at least have a look at it, consider yeah. it. You know, this might be a little bit outside ah, your comfort ah, zone, yeah, but yeah, at least yeah. let's potentially, you know, collaborate or do some work rather let's than be talk, at least. dismissive. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. But and that's that, just that basically just some... because you're a scientist doesn't mean you're not just another unconscious language monkey. I assert to you because it was told to me by scientists there, <laughs> yeah. both during the conference and after the conference, that this was what science was. Well, that, what I, I was that's prescribing, their opinion, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What I was prescribing was not science because I took a variety of these factors that hadn't been individually, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. And even if it had been, which I pointed out to him after the fact, even if it had been that I had actually published in these areas, academically, peer review, what have you, it still wasn't what the science that they were talking about yeah. was about. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, there is no such thing as science. There is only There are only scientists. And, and, and they band together if they have similar opinions and create organizations. Uh, really, you can only talk about individual scientists. There are plenty of great ones. And, and the vast majority of scientists are really unconscious language monkeys. Through my professional life, if someone came to me and said, I have the solution for a problem that you are looking at, plus an additional three years' worth of work that will benefit you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, to I'd certainly want to hear about away it. And not communicate with them would probably cost me my job. And the fact that this doesn't occur in science in the institutions well, it, and individuals it, 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 that I've it met. It does with. happen in some places. Like I say, you really can't talk about science. You have to talk about scientists. And there are scientists who don't respond that way. Yes. Unfortunately, so it's unfortunately a small the, way, the way science is measured in terms of academic institutions, in terms of tier ratings yeah, and a wide yeah, variety I've, of things that defines what science is for scientists, then you start there's some to see, scientists. Well, then you start to, yes. The, the scientists that aren't like that get out and develop technology companies. They don't stay with well, some of them do that or some of them stay within science and, and do really good work. Mm. Do basic research in all mm. sorts of places that doesn't have any direct application, like in astronomy. Mm. You know, there are all sorts of places where, where people study the universe just because they're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on here. So I had lunch through the week with my astronomer friend who now works at Netflix. And I said to him, I was talking to this fellow, I was talking to you, how many of the people that you went to university with, how many of the people around you after you got your degree, he had got a PhD in astronomy, uh, well, astrophysics more importantly, but yeah. basically. He said no one. He said the funny thing was he, after he left university, the only option he had was to work as like a tech support in a, um, in a telescope 
um, you know, or, you know, there, there were so limited roles for him with his PhD that he banded together with a group of other folks that had, uh, you know, astrophysics degrees and they formed a company and then they formed another company and then they formed another company. So, yeah, the brain drain from contemporary science based on the phenomenon that I've described is a yeah. very real phenomenon. Well, that's good. They got some place to go. Yeah. <laughs> but again, if they're going into business, then they're not really doing basic research in the, in some sense. Here's my yeah. point, Heron. The gates for entry to do <clears throat> basic research and to do science as they wanted to do science were so great that they they well, invested yeah. such well, yeah, especially in things like that, yeah. like astrophysics. Of course, that's the beautiful thing about linguistics is that <laughs> I don't need you know a twenty billion dollar accelerator to to explore the leading edge of linguistics. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's 20, awesome. You know. Dirac didn't need a $20 billion. To, I mean, the phenomena of modern science is so completely removed from the people who have actually made paradigm-changing science yeah. historically. Yeah. That it well, yeah, I, I think we're headed to that. I think there's going to – I think 20 years, 30 years from now, we're going to have an entirely different – you know, the whole idea of the Big Bang and basic particles may be out the window and there may be some entirely different theory that, that just makes a hell of a lot more sense. You'd hope. Well, I don't know. I mean, but, but I mean, really, when you talk about a theory where 97% of the universe is unexplainable dark matter, <laughs> or 96, I guess it yes. is, you know, and, and what we can see is 4% of it, I would say, you know, maybe you got a, an inadequate theory. <laughs> well, you'd think that, and you'd hope that there would be some people who were studying science that had done basic well, there philosophy. Are well, there are. To understand yeah. the ridiculous yeah. nature of that. Yeah. Well, but uh, there are. That's why I'm optimistic. I, I just think it's just a matter of time. Uh, like I say, within the next 20 years, I would expect our basic uh, understanding or theory will be, will be quite different. Quantum physics, I mean, the whole thing is just completely unsupportable under any old philosophies. It's, it's just, it's just, you can't put them together. They don't go together. So Lorraine also asks, well, actually, she wants a further explanation on why I would not consider myself a futurist. I think I've probably explained why I can... Well, the analysis so far rendered in this recording associated with science indicates a particular kind of practical interest that I have in my work. I've always been interested, actually, in answering some questions rather than projecting into possibilities. Although you do have to project into possibilities for some of those issues. But I think there are demonstrable things that can be achieved currently, which are considerably more interesting to me than to talk speculatively, particularly because I guess I've experienced a certain degree of chaos and a certain degree of change, which has not allowed me to even really predict what will happen a year into my life, <laughs> rather than yeah. predict what happens in five to ten years. Yeah, yeah. Also, the ability to answer questions, and I've talked a little bit about this previously, but the ability to actually have ideas associated with the current social structure, the current what you are presented with, gives you, in my perspective at least, a slight edge in doing some quite interesting analytics. And similarly, 
Lorraine has a series of questions associated with Noble Ape, and I, I'll put this out to Lorraine that probably the best way to do this is for um, for us to have a conversation, probably a recorded conversation that may not go out on a Stone Ape podcast, may go out in... No, it should go out on a Stone well, Ape podcast, yes, but it should be separate, you're right. Well, that's exactly my yeah, point, yeah, and right, I would also yeah. probably simulcast it on my Noble Ape-related podcast yeah, feed as yeah. well, so we would cover yeah. that in that conversation. But yeah, yeah but it, I'd like to hear that, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I want that in the Stone Ape Okay. Podcast. <laughs> anyway, so I guess my view is that the the people who I've known who have been futurists, Heron included, have had a very strong um, support base, very strong interested group of folk, but they have been, I don't know, considerably less applied than I've tended to find the stuff that I've done. And there's also people talk so freely associated with the future. What I found quite interesting is to talk about particularly what I'm currently doing with Noble Ape, for example, <laughs> And the folks that are receptive to this kind of futurist discussion initially think that I'm talking about the future. It's catching them and then moving them towards, actually, this is software that you can run on your own computer and explore accordingly, is always an interesting twist. So futurism has been a luxury that I've never really felt. I've never thought of myself as a futurist. That's interesting. I mean that that's it I I've always I, I'm always curious when I read that when you write something say futurist and linguist you futurist know? linguist Heron Stone. Yeah uh because I don't think of myself that way at all Well you talk about 20 to 50 Well years. I talk about a lot of stuff yeah, yeah but I mean that to me that's again I I just don't have this distinction about being a I don't we're all futurists how can you not be a futurist The question is whether you're a 5 minute futurist or a 50 year futurist Well a lot of what we discuss here, or a lot of what I try to present here, relates to either thing analysis associated with things that have already occurred, or analysis associated with things that are currently occurring. And I think that well, is- those are all important, though. Yeah, yeah, that's part of. I mean, and the and the the only thing that's missing from that discussion is possibilities for the future. Exactly, and they all go together. You need all of those. I'm not disagreeing. Good. Next subject. <laughs> Lorraine asks. Oh, really? I mean, really, I don't think we... What was the question we were just answering? The question was, I'll read it in full. Uh, Lorraine asks, or Lorraine states, I'd also like further explanation on why Tom is not a futurist, but that might be another dead end with Heron. That's what she wrote. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) I already had my say. So, Lorraine asks a question about a question that Marie had asked previously. And uh, now it's getting complicated. I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, Lorraine notes, Marie asked a question on architecture and society a while back. I think more could be said about that too. Uh, Do we want to live in cities? Wait, say that again. Start again. I'm sorry, I was distracted. So this is Lorraine stating this. Yeah. Marie asked a question on architecture and society a while back. Oh, yeah. I think more could be said about that, too. Do we want to live in cities? What would a humane city look like? Tiny homes near railway tracks for everyone, exclamation mark, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just a huge subject, you know. I mean, I could talk. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so I've got a big, complicated opinion about that. And, um, and, and actually, Tom, I've got to thank you for, because we talked about this last week or the week before. And there are certain aspects that I had really been willing to give up as, as not that important in order to get the, the, the other benefits, you know. But I realize now that actually we can have it all. We really can 
have a, a cabin in the woods, in the pristine woods that no one has lived in for the last 200 years. And we can live there uh, for a month, for a year without damaging the environment at all. And then we can come back and live in the hive where we normally live. Certainly. So I, I don't think we have to choose. I think, I think, uh, Really, if we wake up, if we are a conscious race of entities on this planet, that we can create paradise here. We could have it any way we want. All we got to do is figure out how do we want it. Certainly, certainly. And I think basically I've already given my prescription associated with that. And it's interesting actually because I do wonder when I go and live in the cabin out in the woods by the railway tracks, if I would actually go, you know, if, if I need the kind of stimulation that is both a hindrance and also, you know, the definition of my life so far. I'm willing to give it a try, though, and, um, yeah, I'll report back accordingly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, I would, I can see that. I mean, really, the only thing I require is a high-speed internet connection. Mm. And, and a computer and, that works. Yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> you know, but but where I park my monkey is almost irrelevant. Yes. You know, except it would be nice. Well, you need to get, because there may be times when you do want to associate physically. So there has to be a way. But again, in a reasonable society, that just wouldn't be a problem. Transportation is just, you know, anywhere you want to go on the planet, you can just go. No problem. Go there. So I'm going to conclude the discussion with another Lorraine question. Oh, are we at the end here? Yeah, I'm kind of feeling it's getting dark. I'm feeling like we've covered a lot of the topics. Mm, I think okay. we're, we're getting uh, to the point where... Uh, listen, you're the is, boss, man. This Whatever. Is, this is a long topic so we, we might milk it for another 20 minutes at least yeah, okay well we'll see whatever lorraine notes also an observation and a return of sorts to an old joe the drummer question both tom and heron alternatively come off as misanthropes and lovely <laughs> compassionate humanitarians sent by the current human condition well i can't wait to see who she thinks is which. no she's she, she thinks we rotate we, we are we ah. both we alternate each of us. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Good. Yes. All right. I don't think they're mutually contradictory. Well, no, I don't think they are either. But yeah. usually, well, go on. Anyway, that, anyway. You know, usually in the, one of those, you know, it's a good cop, bad cop thing. You know, except you know, I mean, misanthropy doesn't necessarily mean that it's that. Yeah, that there's a hatred of humanity. It's just associated with a distancing from. It's it. just an understanding yeah. of the realities of certain things and just getting over it. She continues. <laughs> so I wonder if you'd care to speculate on these internal contradictions. I think we've. At least I've stated that I don't think there are internal contradictions there. Or do you reject my pro uh, my premise altogether, which I think we've done, basically? Well, I want to hear it again. Okay. Also, <laughs> you reading this. <laughs> okay. Also, an observation and a return of sorts to an old Joe the drummer question. Both Tom and Heron alternatively come off as misanthropes and lovely, compassionate humanitarians saddened by the current human condition. I relate. So I wonder if you'd care to speculate on these internal contradictions or do you reject my premise altogether? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, Tom. There, I don't see any contradiction there. They're just both different ways. They're different stories mm. and, uh, they're each applicable probably in certain circumstances, you know, mm. the, up to your, <laughs> your discretion. Mm. I yeah. know how I, this was relating. So my spiritual advisor and I went out yesterday. And we went out, uh, normally to buy a new chair because we're running low and we're running low on chairs. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. All right. And That's an interesting concept to be running low on chairs. Well, we have, <laughs> it's interesting actually. So today, today we gave away two flat screen monitors, two televisions, uh, about 50 books, 
and some old curtains. Congratulations. And good, I realized good job. through this that actually there are things that we use, like chairs, which eventually just, you know, they we buy cheap chairs. So I originally said to ah. my spiritual advisor, why don't we go to a more expensive chair? And get a good chair. And get a good chair. And one so that'll that last was, a while. That's what we anticipated doing. Yeah. But when we got to the car park, we realized that at this time of year, you really get a particular caliber of language monkey. Oh, you don't want to go. Oh, yeah. See, I, yeah. At the end of, yeah. Yes. I don't want to go out in the, in so, you know, language monkeys at this time of year. No, thank you. It's interesting, actually, <laughs> because you have this phenomenon. I historically have purchased gifts for people in September for this end of year. That period. makes perfectly good sense. If you're going to play that game, yeah. get it done early. And yeah. now I do it in early December, but I only do it because when I lived in the UK, there was like C-mail postage rates, which means I would buy all the stuff for people in Australia, send it C-mail over, yeah. and then they would get it. I now yeah. use ABE books to get books locally for them, but basically yeah. the mail system in the US, and apparently it's the same in Canada, has no slow post anymore. Basically, the claim is since 9-11, putting packages slowly through a system was going to be very dangerous, so they eliminated all that through <laughs> post-9-11 hysteria. Anyway, so yeah, I realised that when you go out in the wild at this time of year, you are encountered by... We are encountered with humans who basically are on a base on a subsistence <laughs> level of survival. They oh, it's yeah. They it's can't, they haven't apportioned their time sufficiently. And I also found this around tax day in the US. Around tax day in the US, you see people just and I used to yeah. live near a major yeah. post office yeah. in Las Vegas. Yeah. They would shut down the streets. There would be Listen, this is all it's called brain damaged language exactly. monkeys. Exactly. You can't really, you know, this is it's a statistical thing, you know, a certain percentage yes. fall, you, know, or, yeah. you know or have a tendency for this or that, but yeah, it's appalling. It's it, a, it, it's quite quite upsetting. I, I did me. something really extraordinary uh yesterday. I actually mm -hmm. drove to downtown LA. Mhm. Mm I haven't been there in like three decades. Wow! You know, uh, and to be this walking. This was your celebration of the new year in downtown LA. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you about that. But anyway, <laughs> just the idea of walking around on, on, at the street level, and there are like sixty-story skyscrapers mm -hmm. <laughs> above you. Yes. You know, is just quite an interesting experience. You know. Um, and I mean, I've avoided, I just don't like driving. I don't like traffic. I don't like people. Mm -hmm. There's no point in me to do that. Exactly. And I haven't done it for many, many years. But uh, I submitted some artwork to a gallery oh. in downtown LA that just had, I was going to go on their grand opening, but I, uh, I ended up deciding not to. But I went up there. I figured I'd go on a Saturday when the traffic isn't bad. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I could, and, and it worked out pretty good. I drove more or less straight through, got there, found a place to park. Google Street View is awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I knew exactly where I was going and just drove right in there, parked, walked over to the gallery, went in and saw what I wanted to see, and um, and then left. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So is this a new thing for you, or have you always submitted bits of artwork to galleries? No, uh, I've tried to before. I never. There's a huge prejudice against digital art. Yeah. Uh, in, in most of any, anyway, most of the people that I found, uh, I've been to a lot of galleries in LA trying to show my stuff, and uh, and I what they, even on the phone, you know, I couldn't I couldn't say it's digital. They wouldn't even talk to me. They just hang up. You know yeah. what you do? You get a paintbrush. You put some acrylic paint on it, and you you throw. 
you know, you effectively throw the paint onto your digital print and then it no longer is exclusively digital. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm not going to play that game. Uh, <laughs> my sense is the images, the images speak for themselves. Yes. You know, I don't give a shit about how, the, how it got made. Look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you like it or not? It's just that simple, you know, if you like. And, and usually my experience with actual people is that when they see my stuff, they like it, you know. So uh, I, still think, I still think my stuff is really sell- – just as a, you know, as a business person, mm. I think uh, – and you're just like – again, in, uh, for interior decorating and, uh, you know, commercial art for, for uh, companies, you know, for their hallways and shit, that my stuff is just – fucking awesome for that you know and relatively cheap you know it's just it's just a simple business proposition and a sales job i mm. mean it requires sales mm. but uh i'm not good at sales i just create the shit i love it mm. and again i think yeah let me put that out there if there's some salesperson out there who thinks you can sell art to companies i've got the art you can sell to companies mm. especially high-tech companies so I had a friend, when I came out here in 99 through to 2001, one of the people who I spent a good quantity of time with was actually an artist who did exactly that. In fact, he sold his work to McAfee and a wide variety of other companies, but also then yeah. the CEOs of the companies. Right. He made quite a tidy living out of it. We yeah, talked I, yeah. periodically about how he actually did that. He now lives in India, I think. I followed his family. He stayed with me <laughs> periodically. He stayed with me yeah. in the UK and he stayed with me when we lived I in I would Vegas. be real happy to do exactly this. I think that the, I think the stuff I'm creating is, I love it. Mm. I think it's fun. It's Why fun to I do. Why I put you in contact with my friend? Because he may actually have yeah, please do. Yeah. Not necessarily a blueprint, but at least well, some no, ideas. but he may know something that yeah. could be useful to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think, it, like I say, I'm really not interested in the mechanics of all that shit. I just like making the art, mm. and uh, but I'm not. I'm certainly not going to sell it myself, and mm. I, I don't really give a shit about that. But I do think that if there's someone out who, there who thinks they can sell it, this shit is sellable. Yeah. He used to. Uh, he had a van, a large van. <laughs> did he live down by the river, though? That's the question. <laughs> well, at some periods he did. and But he used to go to the galleries and just drop off his art continuously. He'd cycle yeah. it through. Um, he would do trips where, you know, he'd be based in Arizona. He'd come to L.A. and then go up to the, you know, up to this part of the world and, you know, drop off art and do a variety of things. Yeah. He then developed a, a, a website to sell his art online and use the, the galleries, then would go straight to the site and yeah. just could also purchase it through the site. Yeah, it could, it's, yeah. It could be real simple. Yeah. yeah, it could all be automated. and uh, But you still need a sales force. You still need somebody to sell it. He's a huge fan of Skype as well, Heron. Yeah. So yeah. I'll put you two in No, contact. please do. That would Easy. be very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, we will, uh, we will probably talk this Friday. And have more to discuss, no doubt. But I'm interested in exploring this art perspective. And I'll need to think of more well, it's something. Yeah, it's something that's been on my – well, I mean, mm. I started doing this about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I actually went out and tried. I went. There's a place called Bergamont Station down mm. in Santa Monica, which mm-hmm. is this whole area of art galleries. Yes. And I brought my stuff down there and decided I was just going to go to every single gallery, just one after another and show them <laughs> and see if anybody was interested. Yes. And nobody was interested. Oh, well, you, <laughs> you know, were doing it then. It was yeah. just very – but actually, for me, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, that would have been nice if someone had said, cool, let's give you a show. <laughs> but uh, nobody did. And so anyway, I just keep doing it because it's fun doing. And I still think. 
um, again, these, there, there was just a huge prejudice, you know, mm. like photography mm. was in the beginning, you know, yeah. it wasn't real art, it's photography, yes. you know, where the, where's the art in that, you know, <laughs> and I, and I really see this as very much like photography. Mm. I mean, that's why, I mean, my whole series is called Imaginary Landscapes. Mm. Uh, it, it, I get to invent the universe, but still, and I can tweak it and there's a lot, I have a lot of control, but limited control. I'm just like a photographer, <laughs> you know, I go into these universes and I move around and then I find a composition that I like and I take a picture and then I tweak it, you know, in some graphics application, you know, change some things here and there. But uh, it really is like photography in some ways. Aaron, it's been a pleasure as always. Lorraine, get in contact with me. We'll do a Noble Ape offshoot discussion. Yeah, Put that it all together fun. and uh, yep. Same time on Friday, Aaron. Talk to okay. you soon. Take care. All right. Bye.